You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listening to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The word of the Lord. You may be seated this morning. How many have heard this story of Mary and Martha before? Lots of teachings on it. We are in a series called Summer Apocalypse, and we are talking about basically sort of an anticlimactic, boring answer to, is this the end times? And the answer is, it's always been the end times, because wherever the presence of God is, is the beginning and the end at the same time. And so we don't need to sit there and look at what's going on in the world and inflation and gas prices and polarization, all these things, and say, oh, Jesus must be coming because bad things are happening. Wonderful things are happening. Bad things are happening. And none of this means that we should be rooting for an end as much as we should be asking ourselves, what are these times revealing in us? What is going well in me and what is, needs growth in me? And one of the things we said last week was that we hope it's the end times, but not the end times for the world, the end times for those things in me that war against Christ. I pray every day that part of my flesh is living in the end times. I pray every day that part of my pride is living in the end times. I pray every day that part of my rebellion is living in the end times. How many of you pray that some of your children's rebellion is living in the end times? Right? We want it to be the end times for the things that destroy the testimony of Jesus, but we want it to be the beginning of flourishing times for those things that fruitfully declare the gospel. Amen? And so one of the things that we do, and you're going to hear me talk a lot about this as we move into the fall, but one of the things we do is we, for many, many reasons, we place fabric on the cross uh, often and primarily to show us what season we're in spiritually, but also there's a lot of analogies that can be drawn from it. And one of the questions that is asked that is the wrong question is, are these the end times? That's the wrong question. The question that should be being asked is, how is the love of God falling and draping itself over the times that we're in? That's the question. So imagine that, uh, that garment right there, if it was perfectly square, imagine that to be the love of God. And what it wants to do is it wants to fall and land perfectly on the ground without spot or wrinkle because there's nothing inhibiting it. That's the goal. But what's happening is the world is in all kinds of shifty shapes because all these things are going on because so many of us, nobody in this room, but so many of us are sinful, right? There's a lot of sinners out there. Thank God they're not in here. 
Thank God nobody's sinful in here right now. Right now, Phil's not sinful at all. Perfect. Thank God for guys like me and Phil. That's how, that's how it works. So the question we have to ask is not, are these the end times? But when the love of God descends and it starts to hit those things that aren't right, what does it look like for the love of God to drape itself over the peaks and the valleys and the bumps and the things that are crooked? What does it look like when the love of God lands on the brokenness of the world? How does it drape itself? Ask yourself, when the love of God comes down onto your life like it does every day, it bends. It doesn't force its way to be perfect. It bends over the brokenness of your life in such a way where you can see how the love of God hugs those areas, blesses those areas that need healing. That's what we should be. We should be the garment of Jesus. We should be the body of Christ. We should be the garment that drapes itself over the brokenness of the world and shows the world that God's love can, can form its way around all of this to bring healing. Those are the questions to ask. Not, is Jesus coming back to destroy it? It's, how is the love of God, how is the Spirit of God descending on everything that's broken and forming around it? so that it takes on the shape of what's broken, so that it can bring healing. The cross of Jesus is what the love of God looks like when it interacts with a broken world. The cross is the shape that the garment fits around. When the love of God comes down and it interacts with the brokenness, it takes on the shape of the cross. Our lives should take on the shape of the cross when we interact with the brokenness of the people we live with. Our lives should take on the shape of the cross when we interact with our coworkers who are broken, our friends who are broken, the person driving slow in front of you because they're obviously broken. Like, these are the things. We should drape around people's life and to the point where they see us in the shape of the cross. How do we do that? We have to learn stillness. And I'm going to keep saying this until I feel like at least three people in the room get it. And so far, we're at maybe one. No, I don't get it at all. Jacqueline keeps reminding me about it, though. She's like, aren't you talking about being still and quiet? I'm like, you're not allowed to bring that up in a fight, though. That's the rule. Learning stillness. We need to get to circumstantial stillness. We need to get to the place where we can be in a tumultuous circumstance and be still in the midst of things that are shaking. How do we do that? We have to learn inner stillness. Well, that sounds great, Pastor. How do we do that? I'm telling you, and I'm going to keep telling you, you have to take five minutes a day to begin with and do absolutely nothing. And watch what happens inside your body when you do absolutely nothing. No vices. Not even advice. No vices. You're just sitting there being yourself quietly. All kinds of things come up. Good things, bad things. You fall asleep. All kinds of things happen. But it's as you practice that, that you start to learn what is distracting you like Martha. You'll never know what's really distracting you until you're quiet for at least five or ten minutes. And all of the thoughts that are distracting you, well, you'll start to hear them. And they didn't show up when you got quiet. They were always there, but you didn't hear it because you're busy. 
But when you get quiet, you hear the voices that are haunting you. And as you hear those voices, they're very easy to silent once you hear them. It's very easy to get them to be quiet once you hear them. But you have to hear them. And this is what we see in the story of Mary and Martha. Martha is distracted by many things. And because of her distraction, she feels like Jesus doesn't care about her. And it's important for us to look at this story. And so what I did was, all week long, I started writing down a lot of things that I was learning about this story. And I realized this morning, as I was driving over here, I was like, you know what? None of my points connect with each other. None of them do. It's a whole bunch of random points about Mary and Martha. But like, one of the things I try to do is I try to make all of our points, whenever I preach, I try to make all the points fit together in some kind of harmony, in some kind of story, in some kind of flowing point that gets to a conclusion where you're like, oh, that all tied together. And this time, I couldn't at all. I was like, what am I supposed to do? And I felt like the Holy Spirit said, just teach this sermon like it was the book of Proverbs. So I picked four of the most important points that I wrote down. I wrote down about 15. I picked four of the most important points, and here they are. This is a buffet. This doesn't connect, but each point might be for somebody in the room. Amen? So you're going to have a buffet after church in a little while. You're going to have a buffet here right now. But here's just points about the story, points that don't necessarily fit together, but they're points that just come out of the story. They're apocalypses. They're things that have been revealed to me all week long about the story. These are the four that I came up with that I think, you know, hold the most water. And if this is you, ask the Holy Spirit right now to reveal to you the healing that can take place or what is the better part that you need to choose this week to be able to hear the voice of Christ and silence the voice of distraction. Let's pray for a moment. Holy Spirit, we pray right now that as your word is preached, that something would happen between my lips and the congregation's ears, that you would turn these words into spiritual food that we could feed on, that you would allow us to hear what you know we need to hear for our lives to become more fruitful. I pray that we wouldn't be here right now to hear a good sermon, but we would be here to be changed. We would be here to be transformed. We would be here to be healed. We would be here to be anointed for the work of the ministry so that we can leave here also ready to heal, ready to transform, and ready to serve and bless. And so I pray right now that you would clear away any voices that would inhibit this message and allow preaching to be easy and allow hearing your word to be a delight. And we pray all of these things in your name. Amen. So the first point that I want to make is love is not anchored in precedent, but in wisdom. Love is not anchored in precedent, but in wisdom. What do I mean by precedent? There are a lot of things that are supposed to happen. But not everything that is supposed to happen should happen. That's a little confusing. I will explain. All of our kids are supposed to go to school, amen? But if they get the flu, they shouldn't. Does that make sense? So there are things that are supposed to happen. But not everything that's supposed to happen should happen. There are reasons that come along that say, even though this thing should be happening right now in this one circumstance, it shouldn't be happening. It's supposed to, 
but it shouldn't. And when we live lives enslaved to precedent, we live lives that are always afraid to make a momentary exception because we think the one time we let up, the one time we let our foot off the gas, we will never be able to get back the momentum we had. And so there may be a moment where you say, you know what, I just, I'll give you examples from my life. I, I, read, I have a very aggressive Bible reading discipline in my life. A very aggressive one for obvious reasons. I wouldn't expect anybody in this room to have the kind of discipline that I have because this is also kind of my job. And I make sure that I ingest and contemplate and read without cheating a lot of the Bible, a lot of the day, every single day. There are days where I wake up and I'm like, God, I love you, but I don't feel like talking to you today. Like Jen said, I literally was in the back room and I was like, who here on the worship team would like to pray? And Jen said, nope. And I'm like, we are off to a good start today. But that was beautiful because we have to be allowed to say that. I have to be allowed to wake up and say, today... I'm not going to do what I have committed to do every single day. But there's a voice. There's two voices that rise up in you. One voice says, if you don't do that today, it's going to get easier and easier and easier to stop doing it. Have we heard that voice before? If I stop today, especially when I really don't want to, if I give in to the I really don't want to voice, that voice is going to get easier and easier to listen to. Let me tell you. If you don't listen to the voice that says once in a while, take a break from it, it'll get harder and harder to keep the discipline. If you don't take a break from even the most rigorous systems that you have, if you don't take a break once in a while, it'll get harder and harder to keep the discipline. The lie is that if you give in once in a while, it'll get easier and easier to give in. It's the opposite. If you never, ever give yourself allowance to breathe, It'll get harder and harder to keep the discipline. And when you don't, it won't be a Sabbath from it. It'll feel like you've broken it. And that's what's happening with Martha in this text. Martha is living off of precedent. You're supposed to serve when people are over the house. That's what you're supposed to do. And she's, she is such a good hostess that Jesus is at her house with all of his disciples. That's a lot of people. And here's the thing. Martha's house is also Lazarus's house. But Lazarus isn't mentioned. As, as Dr. Green said, Lazarus is a man in the house, but he's no longer the man of the house because this is probably at the very beginning of Lazarus having fallen sick. Now, we know what's eventually going to happen with Lazarus. He's going to die. At this point, because he doesn't even show up in the story, he's probably sick. So Martha has a lot on her plate, pun intended. She's making plates, and she's got a lot on her plate. And she's sitting there saying, I can't stop for a second. I hear Jesus teaching in there. I can't stop for a second. My brother's sick. I can't stop for a second. I want it so badly to go in there and just sit down and listen to what he's saying. Because every time I walk by the room and I hear his voice, my heart is burning within me, but I can't stop. And finally... When we live a life of precedence and not wisdom, or you could say when we live a life of principles and not wisdom, eventually we get accusational. 
because everybody else has to be doing what we're doing because nobody should be allowed to let up at all. So what does she do? She not, she, uh, Martha accuses two people. She says, Jesus, carest thou not, King James Version, carest thou not that my sister's not helping me. She just accused two people. She accused Mary of not being helpful, and she accused Jesus of not caring about her. Because when we live enslaved to the precedent that I can never let up, we end up becoming accusational. We end up forcing people into our system instead of having the freedom to breathe. But here's the reality. Nobody was ever rebuked in this story. No one was rebuked. Martha talked to Jesus. Martha did not rebuke Mary. She asked Jesus a question. Jesus did not rebuke Martha. He said, you're distracted and anxious about many things. Every time I've heard this preached, every time I've read it, and every sermon I listen to this week, someone's getting rebuked in the story, but nobody gets rebuked in the story. But we read it like somebody's got to be right and somebody's got to be wrong because we tend toward precedent. We tend to read a story or read our own life and say, what is right and what is wrong? I have to do the right thing and I can't do the wrong thing. And then we misread something more beautiful than that. Nobody's getting rebuked in this story, not one person. Again, and we're going to talk about this in detail in a minute, Martha doesn't rebuke Mary. He, she says, Jesus, what, do you care that she's not helping me? That's not a rebuke, it's a question. And Jesus says, Martha, Martha, whenever somebody's name is said twice, it's supposed to come across to us as God's compassion for the person. Martha, Martha, I see behind what, I see everything behind you. You're anxious. You're distracted. You're not settled within yourself. There's no rebuke. There's just healing. Martha reveals love. And Mary reveals wisdom in this story. And when love is divorced from wisdom, it will tire itself out. There are times where we are so driven by love that we forget to be wise. And we just get pulled along by need. We get pulled along by precedent. We get pulled along by circumstance. And because those things tug on our love, we just keep getting dragged and dragged and dragged without a break, without boundaries, without anything. And there are moments where love and wisdom have to, have to be together. They have to wed each other so that there can be a healthy rhythm of work and rest. The enemy does not want to latch on to our hate. The enemy wants to latch on to our love because our love is already going so strong in one direction that if the enemy could just get behind us and push us in the direction we're already going, we might just stumble right past Jesus. We might just stumble right past the people we're trying to love. One of my, one of my friends in uh, Kansas always says, your family won't care how good your sermons were if you needed to neglect them to prepare those sermons. I'm like, shut up, dude. No one asked you to speak into my life, even though I did. Whenever you ask somebody to speak into your life and then they criticize you, 
then you're like, I never asked you to do that. I just asked you to pray for me quietly to yourself. But nobody, your family's not going to care how good the sermon was if you needed to break the fabric of a healthy house to get that sermon. There's a point where love can pull us in so many different directions, and because we're not Jesus, we don't know which direction to be pulled in, and so we try to go in all of them. And we can't do that. There has to be a point where we say, I have to stop today. Or, you know what, in order to love this today, I have to kind of not pay attention to this today. Like, sometimes we have to do that. And we can't, all I'm saying is we can't be afraid of precedent. You might make a mistake. You might focus on the wrong thing that day. But all God wants to do is teach us how to do that better. But if we live like, if I make a mistake, then the whole house of cards can fall. We're enslaved, and that is exhausting. So love is not anchored in precedent. It's anchored in wisdom. So for some of you, you don't need to love less. You don't need to work less. You don't even need to be less busy. You need to ask the Lord for wisdom on how to express your love in a way that is not going to cause you to lose yourself in the process. Amen? All right. Burgers in 45. Next one. The better part is always the part that makes you whole. The better part is always the part that makes you whole. Jesus says to Martha, All kinds of things can happen, but one thing is necessary. One thing, listen to what he says. He says, one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part. Do you see how confusing this is? If one thing is necessary, how could there be multiple parts? One thing is necessary, but Mary has chosen the better part part. Where's, what's the rest of the parts, Jesus? Why are you so confusing all the time? Sometimes Jesus is more confusing to me than Jacqueline. (laughs) Sophia said, yeah, right. Sophia, you're pretty confusing too. What is the better part? The better part is always the part that will make you whole. And so for Martha, the better part is what Mary is doing. But what if Jesus later says to Mary, Mary, Peter has chosen the better part. And then to Peter, he says, Paul has chosen the better part. And then to Paul, he says, Barnabas has chosen the better part. What is the better part? The better part is always that thing that if you started doing it, you would get closer to wholeness. So the better part may be different for a lot of people because we all do a lot of good things, but then somebody else in my life has a part of my wholeness that if I learn from them, I can be more whole. God will never let you be whole on your own without the person next to you and the person across from you and the people watching from home. He put us together as a body so that we could never be whole apart from each other. 
So there's always something that you're doing good. And the good that you have is, is the, also the part that will make somebody else in your life whole. And the good that somebody else is doing is the part that if you adopted it into your life, you would be made whole. So some of you have the rest of what I need to be made whole. Here's the thing. I'm pretty good at communicating, not super good at listening. What? I'm just kidding. Not super good at listening. So some people here are great at listening. How do I know this? Because you listen every week super well. Sometimes you listen so well you forget to say amen, and that's fine. But I need, as a pastor, I will only ever be a pastor that grows in his ability to pastor as I learn from what you do well and adopt that into my life. Because so much of what you have is the better part for me. And some of what I have is the better part for you. There's this, uh, there's this prayer in the New Zealand. Ian, we never did a run through. Do you have the New Zealand? Nice. Can you throw that on there? You have it? Hoof. That's a lot. No, no, no. Do you have the New Zealand prayer? The, uh, he call us like Martha out of the kitchen and Zacchaeus out of the tree. Do you have that picture? No, it's fine. All right, well, I just said it anyway. So there's this prayer in the New Zealand prayer book. I'm a dork. I read the New Zealand prayer book. It's really, really good. And one of the prayers says this, call us, Lord, like Martha out of the kitchen and like Zacchaeus out of the tree. Call us like Martha out of the kitchen and like Zacchaeus out of the tree. Do you understand how genius this prayer is? Because watch, Martha is called out of the kitchen to sit at the feet of Jesus, right? Zacchaeus is called out of the tree to open the home and get into the kitchen because Jesus is coming to his house. So for Martha, he says, out of the kitchen, Mary's chosen the better part, join her. Zacchaeus is in the tree, taking on the position of Mary. He's up in the tree, listening to Jesus, watching him pass by. He stopped everything he's doing. He's now sitting. He's now got the position of a disciple. And Jesus says, out of the tree, into the kitchen, get things ready. I'm coming to your house. So the better part was different for each of them. For Martha, the good part was her service. The better part is what she needs to learn from Mary. For Zacchaeus, the good part was what he already learned from Mary. He learned how to sit and be a disciple, but the better part was learning how to open his home, get out some plates, dust off some dishes, order some pizzas because Jesus is coming. I say order some pizzas because Jesus only gets the best when he comes over. So, you can't read these stories saying which one is the right one. You have to discern in your own life, what do you do well innately? What comes easy to you? And then know that you need to always do that. It's a gift. But then you need to look around you at the people God's put in your life to say, what do they do that I tend not to do and learn from that? And that's how there can be wholeness in the body of Christ. Okay, third, honest prayers will open God's life to, to others. Honest prayers will open God's life to others. 
You ready? Martha didn't realize that she had already become Mary the minute she stopped what she was doing to talk to Jesus. She's in the kitchen doing all this work. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. Martha's like, how come nobody's helping me? And what does she do? She doesn't go to Mary and say, get in the kitchen and help me right now. I don't know why you're sitting down. Women shouldn't even be sitting down when there's a man in the house, which is true then, which also tells you that Jesus was teaching women to have authority in the church. That's why he wasn't offended that Mary was sitting because he was teaching her to be a pastor. I thought there'd be at least a clap from a lady in the house. Trying. All right, maybe you'll clap at this one. The New Zealand prayer calls Martha out of the kitchen and Zacchaeus into it. Can I get a witness from some ladies there? Men, pick up a dish and wash it. It's okay. It's not going to hurt you. All right. If you guys are more happy to eat after than you are during this, I'm going to be supremely offended and burn your, your hamburgers. Where am I? I'm in church, so, so that much we know, and that's enough. Honest prayers will open God's life to others. Martha, the minute she turns from her serving and goes to Jesus and not Mary, she doesn't go to Mary in front of Jesus and say, Psst, he's here, you should be helping me. She goes to Jesus and says, why don't you care about me? Because if you did, you'd be telling her to help me. Now, granted, Mary's like, I'm right here. You, I know who you're talking about. But what does Martha do? She prays. We just don't see it as prayer because they're in the same room together. But she's talking to God about her frustration in herself, him, and somebody else in the room. She's not going to Mary, blasting Mary's head off. She's going to Jesus saying, why don't you? I feel like you don't care about me because if you cared about me, you'd be telling her to help me. But you ready? In that moment, Martha became Mary because now she's not serving. She's sitting at his feet asking him an honest question. And if it wasn't for her honest question, we wouldn't have this story today. So every time you feel overwhelmed, overburdened, frustrated, tired, working your fingers to the bone, life not ending, the minute you get honest and say, God, honestly right now, I don't feel like you care about me. In that moment, you are not just opening up the life of God to you, you're opening up the life of God to everybody, even people you don't even know. Because Martha had no idea that by being honest once, a bald-headed preacher in Beacon... 2,000 some odd years later would be preaching about her being honest. When we're honest in our stressful moments, instead of bottling them up, keeping them in like we think that's what we're supposed to do and have to do because that's what faithfulness is. It's never complaining. It's never doubting. It's never really, it's just grinding it out when we realize just stop for a second, God, I'm going to keep going, but Right now, I feel like you don't care about me. I, I, I don't have any help. The people helping, yeah, it's great. They, 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 they picked up a dish. That's great. I got the rest of the kitchen. My coworkers, yeah, okay, fine. They stayed late once. 
I stay late all the time and I'm on salary and I'm not getting overtime for it and I do it all the time. I do it so much it's now expected. If you cared about me, maybe somebody else would help. Everyone bites back when they're criticized at work. I'm the only one who doesn't. If you really cared about me, somebody would stand up for me because I'm having trouble standing up for myself. When we're honest it opens up the life of God to other people in ways we will never know. But if Martha wasn't honest, we wouldn't have this story. She not only provided for Jesus to eat, sit, and teach, but she also provided for us to hear his teaching to her because she was honest. And here's the thing, and I'm contradicting myself a little bit because I'm just pulling out random points. Jesus never tells her to stop serving. He just tells her she's distracted. What is the better part? The better part is any part that helps you serve or sit without being distracted. We read it like, okay, so the good part is serving. The better part is sitting. No. The better part is anything, the better part is you contemplating Jesus well while you're serving and while you're sitting so that while serving or sitting, you're not distracted. Because you could go to a story in Samuel and read about David, who when all the kings went out to war, David sat on his couch, and David sat on his couch long enough to violate Bathsheba. So just because you're sitting with the Lord doesn't mean you're not distracted. Fair? David should have gotten up and gotten out of his house. So you could be sitting with the Lord or you could be serving in the kitchen and you could be distracted in both situations. The better part is learning how to contemplate Christ in the midst of your strain and stress and busyness and in your relaxation because you can be distracted in either. Honest prayers open up God's life to others. And then finally, serving plus Eucharist equals wholeness. Serving, St. Augustine said this, Martha is the church at work and Mary is the church at the Lord's table. And we need to have an interplay with both. Martha is the church at work, and Mary is the church at the Lord's table. Salem, there needs to be effort. There needs to be serving. There needs to be volunteering. I didn't strategically make that last point so that I could say, some of us in this room have been serving in child care a lot and would love to be able to spend a Sunday sitting in here, but the only way that's going to happen is if some people who always sit in here finally serve out there. Amen? If we want to have a healthy uh, fullness of Martha and Mary, we need to be a church that provides the space for each other to sit in here and provides the space for each other to serve out there. See, one of the statistics that we have at Salem, which is amazing, is about 75% of our membership volunteers in a ministry. 
That's outrageous. I mean, you can talk to people, which I do, who have very, very big churches, and they get about 40 to 50% of their congregation volunteers. Almost 100% of our, of our congregation volunteers someplace. But here's the thing I don't like. Out of that 75% that volunteers, almost everybody who volunteers one place volunteers two places. And that could sound good as a brag if I wanted to spin a statistic, because did you know statistics can be spun? Did you know that? Statistics, as it turns out, you can make them say whatever you want them to say. I was on Twitter. I know this. I don't like the fact. I'm happy that people keep serving. I'm happy that Natalie in the video said, there was a need, so I met it. But it would be nice if enough people served so that everybody could serve at a pace that allows them to sit here most Sundays and serve out there some Sundays. That would be us loving each other well, because we need to be the church at work, and we need to be the church at the Lord's table. Let's stand to our feet this morning. I feel like I, I wanted this to be said to me, and it was, and it was very helpful. I'm saying this stuff to us, and it can be heard so many different ways. I'm, I remember, I remember walking into youth group here for the first time, and it was raining, and I had to come through the side stairs right there and walk down. And if you've ever been down those stairs after it's been raining, you make an awful lot of noise squeaking down those stairs, and that door slams really loud, and everybody knows that you just showed up. If you're, if you're a man here, I've made fun of everybody who's come to a men's meeting late because we can all hear you when you come in. Man, I came in first time, first time ever in the building. I came in, and I walked down the stairs, and there was like 100 kids down there. I knew nobody, and I squeaked and slipped my whole way down, everybody looking at me, and Dan Underhill stood up, put out a chair immediately, and said, here, sit here next to me. You're Frank's brother, right? And I heard, Frank's brother, Frank's brother, Frank's brother. And right away, I was like, yo, I, 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 I remember saying to myself then, I will never forget what this guy just did. It was terrifying being super socially awkward, having all those kids looking at you. I, and I can't find a chair. Like, what am I supposed to do? I'm going to turn around and go back up the stairs, probably trip up them. And then somebody's like, oh, that's Frank's brother. Here, sit right here next to me. Bang. And everything, just in one second, everything changed because people are super shallow. And that worked. But I was just like, if somebody wasn't taking care of the kids well, I might not have stayed. Right? I was met by people who were violent. That was a Friday night back then. That was a Friday night. All these guys were serving in the youth group. And a f people who volunteered on a Friday night. At the time, Dan was about to get married. He wasn't even married yet. Jay's Rodlowski, Ian's brother, was running the youth group. This is a minute ago. And they were volunteering and serving. And 
everybody here has had a moment that even though to everybody else it seems so small, it was so huge to you and nobody could understand why. But that moment could have been so bad for me. And one sentence and one chair and I never left. I I got hooked on the place right away. You have no idea what happens when you volunteer to bless these kids, to send your kids to youth group with Jen and Don, to volunteer, to ask them, is there anything they need? To go to Elizabeth or Annie or Grady or Courtney and say, I want to sign up. I want to volunteer. I want to be that person where somebody says, man, I was 10 and I fell And one of those adults tripped and fell next to me. And I'm pretty sure he did it on purpose. But everybody laughed and kind of moved on. And it saved me from being very embarrassed. I would have left. Wouldn't have wanted to go back. That could be any of us. But we have to go from the sitting position to the serving position sometimes. And then there are some of you, man, you're wearing yourself out. You think you can't take a break. I'm telling you, you can. You need to. You need to breathe. God says, work the ground for six years, but for one year, let it sit. And no, I didn't just say, don't volunteer for a year. I didn't say that. I heard you hear that. I love you all so much and I truly want to see what's best and I know what we're capable of. We are a little church in Beacon, New York, but we love real big in this house. We love real big in this house. And everyone who comes in for weddings, services, even tragic funerals leaves and says, I, somebody a couple of weeks ago walks out and goes, Pastor, what is this place? And I said, yeah, I know. Like, yeah, everybody's just talking to me. People are helping me, inviting me over to their house. We love big. We have to do it with our kids. We have to love our kids. There is a group, when I, when I I'm going to just keep one more. When I started coming on Sundays, uh, Dan Underhill had the youth group sitting over there, and the kids were, uh, they're kids, I mean, in my mind, they're adults, but they were probably in their late teens in the youth group, and they were all over there in the front with their hands up worshiping, and I remember I sat way in the back, where Keisha is, I sat way in the back, and like each month I like went up a row, and then one day I was like, I'm going to lift my hands, let's see if I get shot. Now, looking back, if I knew who was in the room, knowing what I know now, it's safe to raise your hands. <laughs> it's definitely safe. And then I was like, I'm going to come to the altar. And no one said anything. Oh, it was great to see you up there. No one said, oh, man, you're silly. You know, I know what you were doing. What are you? you know why nobody said anything? Because it was normal for people to be at the altar. It just was. It just was. Kids, teenagers, youth volunteers leading by example, 
deacons, elders, trustees, leading by example, showing us. And I would never let anybody win. Back then, I would never tell them, I'm going to come another Sunday because of you. But now, man, I wish I could go back and call all of them and invite all of them over. And I can. And now that I said it out loud on the internet, I probably will. And say, I kept coming back because of you guys. Because of you guys. It makes it easy to worship the Lord when people that you look up to literally and figuratively are worshiping the Lord. We can do that for our children. We have to. This church can grow in numbers, which we never talk about, but it can grow in numbers just by keeping the young kids we have here. There's 30 or 40 of them that are growing with us, like young plants growing out of the ground. What better day than our 71st anniversary to say, I want them to be celebrating our 101st anniversary and saying, I saw people worshiping People volunteered. People taught me. People pulled me aside. They asked me what was wrong. They knew something was wrong, and they talked to me. So, yeah, we got sign-ups outside in the foyer. We got sign-ups online. Let's make this easy. If everybody signs up to be with the kids, we're only going to all have to do it once, like, every eight or nine weeks. That would be amazing. Let's pray this morning. Before we join each other at the cookout table, let's join each other here. Lord Jesus, I pray for anyone in the room who's struggling to take a breath in life. I pray that you would let them know it's safe to do so that they're not setting a precedent that's going to destroy things forever. And I pray for those of us who are kind of on couch lock in our spiritual life, stuck, comfortable, not wanting to really move from where we are, not sure of what our gift is or thinking we've done it for too long and it's time for other people to do that. It's not the economy of the kingdom. Pray that you would just Not rebuke, but just show us what's distracting us from the joy that we once had. To love you and to serve you with youthful passion. And so we pray that we would be sustained at this table. Because it was on the night when you were betrayed, when you had truly worked as hard and as fully as anybody can. You spent time with your disciples, and you said, everything I've done, I've done for my body to break, and it's broken for you. And I've worked so hard, literal blood, sweat, and tears, but the blood is poured out for you. All of my work is given to you. As often as you come to this table, receive the bread of my work, receive the wine of my work in remembrance of me. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that you descend on this bread and make it for your people the body and blood of Jesus, the food and the drink of new and unending life in him. And I pray that you descend on this congregation and make us for the world 
the body and blood of Jesus, the body of Christ, so that people may reach out and touch our lives and be healed. Give us grace for the rhythms of work and rest, of contemplation and distraction. Whether we're resting and having trouble resting or working and having trouble working, I pray that we would learn to be still. That you would reveal to us in an apocalypse of your love the things that are distracting us and quiet those voices so that when we're resting, we can be focused on you. When we're working, we can be focused on you. When we're fellowshipping with other people, we can be focused on you. And when we're alone, we can be focused on you. I pray that this meal would continue to sustain this church for another 71 years. And I pray that you bless the time that we're about to have after this. Bless the food that we're about to have after this. Bless the hands that are out there preparing the meal that we're about to have after this. Pray that everything we do for the rest of this day would bring glory to you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. Um, So I'm going to ask Elder Bill... And I'm going to ask Elder Ron if you would each come and take communion. Uh, Ron, you can take it on this side over here if you would like. Thank you very much. Why are you wearing the Yankee shirt again? I can't. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to have a real. I'm trying to have a real moment. We really just. I really just started division at the Lord's table. If I'm not here next week. This is real. Respect it. God, I love, I love you all so very much. Would you come to the table of the Lord and worship with us one more time this morning? Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.